right, hello everybody, and uh, welcome to the April 5th ESC um, seminar. Um, and before we begin, um, I'd like to go through just a couple of announcements. Everybody, please mark on your calendar that there will be an in-person all hands on May 10th um, at Moffett Field. And the day right afterwards in the afternoon, we're going to have a media training. Also on April 14th, um, it's the deadline for the Presidential Early Career Awards for Scientists and Engineers, um, which has been won by several USGS people before. So um, please remember to submit your nominations. You can find the, uh, app, the form in an email that Christine sent out on March 30th. And finally, on the week of April 17th through 20th, um, a lot of us are gonna be at SSA, so there's not gonna be an ESC seminar that week. Um, now I'm going to hand it off to Mustafa, I mean, to, sorry, to Mehmet to introduce our uh, speaker for today, um, Professor Mustafa Erdik. Good morning, everybody. I am happy to introduce Professor Mustafa Erdik today. I have been, uh, uh, let's say, a colleague and friend and uh, everything else uh, uh, with Mustafa over many decades. So probably best suited to introduce him. And uh, also, I would like to say that there are uh, at least two people or more in the audience in the that remember Mustafa when he worked at USGS many years ago with uh, the late Bill Joyner. Uh, Mustafa started his early earthquake engineering career as a student at Matthew participated in a reconnaissance of the 1970 Gettys earthquake. And I, I believe that probably led him to uh, where he is now because he enjoyed in that reconnaissance uh, study. He received his bachelor's degree from Middle East Technical University in 1973 and then received Fulbright scholarship to study for his PhD at Rice University under direction of well-known professor Andy Velazos. Following that, he joined faculty at METU, Middle East Technical University, and uh, advocated earthquake engineering curriculum and research. Later, he moved to Kandili Observatory of Bosphorus University where he served as director of that institute for many years, from 1992 to including 1999 earthquakes in Turkey. He played a big role in uh, also developing uh, early warning system for Istanbul area. Uh, I must say that uh, Mustafa can be described as unretired retired professor because I think he's more busy now than when he was active as a faculty member in at Kandili University. So I am very happy to introduce the Mustafa, who's been a long time friend and colleague. Thank you. So please go ahead. OK, well, well, thank you, Mehmet. I hope I deserve all the statements and then I'm I'm pleased to be able to to address to such a distinguished audience. I'm sure that you have heard lots of talks on this earthquake, but this will be one that I'll try to wrap up things and then I'll essentially 
try to discuss what went on in the earthquake. And then the first half of my presentation will deal with subjects that you know probably much better than I do, dealing with tectonics, seismicity and the ground motion part. And then the second half, I'll dwell into the uh, structural stuff. Let me take your first slide. Well, I'm sure that by now you know all of those things, but essentially the thing is that uh, well, the earthquake took place on the so-called East Anatolian Fault, and those are the two events that are about... Well, those are the ones that are about nine hours apart, so the all the buildings in this area essentially were affected by two earthquakes, essentially, with very short interval in between. The uh, Magnum 7 point earthquake was physically very similar to 1906 San Francisco earthquake that over, I think, 80% of the city was destroyed. If you look at the general statistics, about 3 million people have been displaced. About 1.7 million people have been resettled. About 260,000 collapsed and or heavily damaged buildings. And then about at least 50,000 and including Syria, probably 55,000 deaths and 1100 uh, injuries. Well, this is a closer view of the East Anatolian Fault. The area marked as blue here, which is described here, is that there were no large earthquake, major earthquake in the last 500 years. And the last earthquake here, two last earthquakes, one of them is at Yelvan 14 and the other one is 1513. And the earthquake essentially affected this segment and jumped to this segment to the north of it. Well, the most, the biggest earthquake that has affected this part was the one in what we call Antakya, the old city is Antioch, and that was in 526. Then about 350 to uh, 300,000 people lost their lives. That's the probably the largest casualties that in an earthquake that we know of. And the well, the same area was one of the areas that has received the, the greatest damage compared to the others as well. Well, the this is just a uh, map that indicates the the slip rates and the slip rate on the East Anatolian fault appears to be about uh, one centimeter per year, and that means that if you are talking about six meter slip in ten millimeter year per slip, that gives about 600 plus years as a repeat time, and that's what we have seen in this earthquake as well. This map on the left is as essentially taken from the Turkish Syria earthquake sequence from USGS. That shows the, the ruptured areas, and then the, the, the first earthquake took place over here on the northern fault and jumped to this fault, and then after nine hours, jumped to this fault. Essentially, uh, these two faults are combined here, but for some reason that part didn't get uh, activated, but this part was activated. And then the this is a, I, I took it from Rothstein from Tambler, which says that this part is very similar to the San Andreas and the Garlock fault, and the Garlock fault here essentially mimicking the, the that of the uh, Elbistan fault, which is this one. And then, then the having an earthquake on this one and jumping to this one to the main uh, to the main fault is also repeated as he says those are again from Rothstein in the 
magnitude 7.9 Danelli event. These are the pictures of the fault offset. There are thousands of them probably. I have just taken the ones, six of them. Those are from the MTA report in Turkey. And then, and then, well, the area is a huge area. So there are snows, there's springs and all sorts of things in the region. This is 3.6 meter and then goes to 3.7 meter here. This, this is the classical picture of the offset in the railroad. It shows that the railroad was built uh, very well, built very well though. Nothing in the uh, in the buttresses, nothing in the system as well. So the if you look at the this is the aftershocks. I think they I got them from the institute, so probably are three four days old at the most. Uh, you don't see it much on this one, but you see the detachment here is so essential. There is no direct physical connection between this fault and that fault here for some reason. And then uh, the earthquakes are dying down with days. This the horizontal axis, the days, the vertical axis, the number of earthquakes recorded. So aftershocks are dying in this manner. But there have been several aftershocks. The interesting is that there were at least three aftershocks with magnitude between magnitude six and seven, and 49 aftershocks with magnitude uh, five and six, and then they finished the buildings that were either medium damaged or heavily damaged and they they made them collapse. So, so many aftershocks and large aftershocks was, we haven't seen it at least in Turkey before. Well, this is the uh, stations uh, in Turkey operated by the Disaster Emergency Management Presidency. There are other stations that we operate and other institutions operate so altogether. There are about 2000 stations in this area, strong motion stations. And then those are the ones that uh, recorded the, the first earthquake, magnitude 7.8, then the second one, and that's the third one. Uh, that's in the in South even. Those are several stations recorded them. Well, these stations are essentially managed by the AFAD, the agency, and they are still struggling on uh, releasing the final set of data. So I'll, I'll be working on the data that I received directly from AFAD. They keep changing them, they keep they, they're changing their baseline adjustment, other things. So I'm sure that it will take some time so that we can set, see them as the final set of data. But there's a huge number of data obviously obtained from the main shocks and the aftershocks as well. This is the largest shock. Uh, they removed this uh, data set for some time from the website and put them again. And then the, the peaks are about 1.95 G, close to 2 G peaks. Uh, displacements are not that great, about 22 millimeter, 22 uh, centimeters. And the location of the uh, station is here. And then obviously, if you look at the if you look at the response spectrum, this acceleration spectrum it looks terrible. This is the 1G line and these things go up to 7G. That's a 5% uh, damping level. Obviously, I do not think that any structure in this range can withstand this motion. These are the uh, distribution of the uh, stations that recorded the M7 uh, magnitude 7.8 earthquake in PGA levels. I'm sure that you don't see it that clearly, but those are the ones that essentially follow the fault. And over here you see red ones. Those are the ones that record high motion. And the same thing also, uh, this is the east-west distribution. This is the north-south distribution and that's the east-west distribution. These figures are probably easier to understand. That's just the 
just drawing contour maps on the base of the peak values. This is uh, the PGA values. This is the PGA values. This is uh, this is NS direction. This is east-west direction. And then what you see is that these are the real the killer uh, peak acceleration values. There are some values here and here. This is just the first earthquake. The second earthquake took place on the fault line here, and then the we have to look at the combined motion, but obviously you cannot combine the motion. The acceleration levels here uh, are lower, obviously, from the second earthquake, but then again, the structures do not see that. They see the combined action of two motions. And these are for the velocities. When it comes to velocities, even the killer velocities are located here. I will come in a while why they are here, because essentially starting from here, this whole area is a valley and there's a big basin here. Well, these uh, figures I, I gathered from the MET report that I Gul essentially mentioned uh, in the previous talk on the subject at the USGS. And this is this is Buretol. Uh, well, let me do it this way. Yeah, this is this is Buretol. Uh, uh, attenuation relationship, and this is the Chiu Yangs. And then what you see is that it essentially stays between the plus and minus one standard deviation levels. Here at these levels, these values, PGA values, exceed and may even exceed the plus uh, two standard deviation levels. For some reason, after 100 kilometers, they die down and go even uh, to go reach even plus probably minus two standard deviation. I don't know the reasons for that, but I'm sure that it will be uh, eventually enlightened. These are the uh, these are some sample uh, record spectra and their comparison with the code base spectra. What you see blue here at the top, those are those correspond to the MC spectra in the US codes, and this should correspond to two-thirds of the MCE spectra. In Turkish, those are associated with the 475 years, and those are even associated with lower return periods. So what you see the, in this record, and well, at least in this one, you can see that the recorded motion is, is pretty close to design motion uh, in short period range, but in mid-period range, they, they reach the uh, MCE level. Well, that depends on the location always. In other locations, if you look at it, they uh, even the this is the code based design level. The code based design level, essentially, if you are dealing with a, if you are with a structure 10 story high or even 15 story high, then you exceed the design basis uh, ground motion by at least three times. Those are obviously not easy to to be absorbed by the structures themselves. This figure I took from Japanese sources, and this is the spectral acceleration spectral displacement curve. On this axis, you have the spectral acceleration. On this axis, you have the spectral displacement. This is in centimeters. This is in centimeters per second square. And this is drawn for 15% damping, probably more applicable to the, I would say, the isolated structures. And then what you see here is that, uh, especially this record, is that the, the ones that are colored, this one, this one, and this one, are taken from the Turkish earthquakes. All others relate to the more Japanese data, so they just want to make a comparison for, for example, this is from the Kobe earthquake. And the interesting thing is this one. If you look at this one, it seems that this is, well, this is two seconds probably if you go like this, this may be 2.5 second line. At 2.5 second, you are dealing with a uh, base shear coefficient of 0 0.8 
and the displacement of about, uh, well, close to 90 centimeters. If you take this one, the base shear coefficient is 0.6, again high, and you are dealing with displacement of about, uh, well, close to under than 35 centimeters per second. What they intend to show that it would be very difficult or costly to design an isolated structure even under those conditions. These are uh, near fault records, not very near fault, but I would say near fault and the quasi near fault, I would say. And the interesting thing is that the spectra, response spectra look pretty the same, are almost similar to each other with some difference, obviously, but it gives you a general shape. This is a very broadband record. It shows that almost starting probably 0.1 second, even I would say 0.08 second, 0.07 second, and up to almost uh, two seconds, it is flat at 1G range. So that's a very broad band record. And the same thing holds for the displacement spectra. Displacement spectra, what you see is that starting from about two seconds, well, I draw it to up to 30 seconds, but starting about two seconds, and you can take it probably up to 20 seconds, it follows the one meter line. Well, the Displacement spectra obviously is very important for displacement-based design, and there are several attempts of uh, plotting it on the basis of the available data so far. And for a problem, this is from Akkar and Bomber. What it shows that even for magnitude eight, at the at level of two seconds, it's only about less than about 20 centimeters or 15 centimeters, and then at high uh, periods, this goes about four seconds. It only reaches about uh, well. 30 centimeters, which is obviously does not uh, follow what we have observed. Well, the this is from Campbell and Bozorknia. That's that that's pretty pretty better for uh, magnitude eight. It goes to one meter again at this level, but at a level of two seconds, it's again quite low value. Those are a more recent study from uh, 2022 by Chinese, and then well, they their predictions is pretty close to the Campbell and Bozorknia. What I'm here is that the displacement spectral shapes probably will change after the earthquake, mostly for the near field, near field uh, data. Well, in several of the velocity traces, the pulses, the pulses can be seen very well. And these, the, the pulse period this is about uh, four seconds, this is about two seconds, this is about five seconds, this is about, again, uh, I think five seconds. Uh, I, I'm sure more more studies would be needed on uh, on uh, on sorting out the the directivity effects and then the seeing how they relate how the both the magnitude and the and the problem site conditions relate to the uh, both the amplitude and the period of these pulses. So there's I'm sure lots of people will work on that. The other thing that we have noticed is the basin. That is the basin in Hatay is called Amik Basin also. Well, that's the basin itself. The, the area that's heavily settled in this area, and then you can see the, these are the buildings over there, and the color code indicates the one that are collapsed or heavily damaged. The, the ones that are in, uh, in red here are the ones that have collapsed, and then you can see the most of settlement here. That coincides with this region, that coincides with this region. There's a fault line here. I don't know if there's a fault or not, but that's the basin itself. The dimensions of it probably in this direction about 30 kilometers and this direction about probably, I would say 15 kilometers. 
So I think in dimension wise, I don't know that's sure, but I was told that dimension wise it resembles that of the LA basin. And then these are a preliminary study of the amplification on the basin. These stations, well, this one and this one are the stations that are located on stiff soils. And these two stations are the one that are located on the basin. And that's the transfer function between them. What we see is that, well, obviously it varies a lot, but on the average there's about amplification of about 2 or 2.5. And for a wide range of uh, periods, starting probably about one second up to 10 seconds, and it can even go further. They, uh, we do not know much about the, the details of the basin in the sort of, for example, if you want to complete it with, with the Campbell and Bozorknia, we have to deal with uh, the shear wave velocities at uh, 2.5 kilometers, and the, we don't know it. But the, that the, what it shows that the results are quite similar to the basin amplification factors given by Campbell and Bozorknia. Uh, if Z2.5 is between 3.5 and 4.5 kilometer, there will be several projects of this. I'm sure that will and that will be sold out, and then. We really need those data. The reason being is that in our next version of the earthquake hazard maps that's associated with the code, we want to include the basins as well because the the all the structures located on this basin have received ground motion that exceeds at least twice of the code based levels. Well, this is the looking uh, to Antakya Basin from the uh, looking south essentially. Well, this is the uh, river that goes through it. And then, well, the debris is cleaned so that all these areas, essentially building collapse and debris is cleaned. And that's the mountain part. I think the fault passes somewhere here, but not much damage on the mountain side. Well, the findings on the strong ground motion, most of them I already explained, but the record PGAs are generally in agreement with NGA West 2, except that velocities are higher. Acceleration spectra in the near field conditions generally exceed the code based design basis ground motion. And in some cases, even the MC associated code based spectrum. Well, this is to be expected, obviously, but the recorded vertical accelerations, especially at near fault sites and soft soils, are very high and they even exceed the, the horizontal PGAs. And pulse like motion is clearly visible in selected velocity traces. The near fault reactivity features in the responder in recorded ground motion needs to be investigated. The effects of the Amic Hatai Basin are evident, and then the National Earthquake Hazard Maps need to modify to reflect increased ground motion levels associated with the important basins in this country. Not only this basin, but there are other basins as well. The other thing is that we may need to wait for sorting out some of the inconsistencies associated with this strong motion data. That will take some time, probably. I don't think it will affect all of the records or those general findings, but some some of the records may be uh, differ from the what we have before. Now, coming to the structural response, this is the isoseismal map of the uh, earthquake. The yellow traces here indicate the intensity seven. Well, intensity seven is the intensity that essentially the damage starts to uh, most structures. And this this distance is 100 kilometers. So the thickness of this is about, I would say about sometimes 70 kilometers. This dimension approaches about three uh, 
300 kilometers and that dimension about, I would say 100 kilometers. So we are talking of an area about 400 kilometers by 70 kilometers that received damage. Two parts are received heaviest damage, that's the Kahraman Maraş part. The reason being that it's affected by these two events, both of them affected the, obviously, the performance of the structure here. And then this is the area that we have, the, that I told you about the basin. So those two areas receive damage damage. The maximum intensity, I would believe in the vicinity of probably 11 at locations near to the faults. The average intensity, intensity I would imagine to be about between 9 and 10 in most of these heavily damaged areas. Obviously, there are areas that are less intense than this, but especially in this and this areas, the intensities are close to between 9 and 10, the average intensities. Well, our previous data tells us essentially what happens in those intensities. This is the empirical building fragility model, empirical, just the field data from the 1990 Kojol earthquake in Turkey. Now, well, this is the total collapse. This is the heavy damage. Uh, for most cases, when we say damaged buildings or buildings that cannot be used afterwards or to be demolished, include both of them. So, for example, if you go to intensity 10, what we see here is that, well, that combines the D5, damage 5, and the damage 4. What we see is about this level, and that goes to about, well, close to 35-40% of, of the buildings damaged, either this shape or that shape. Well, if you go to intensity 9, that drops down to about 14%, 15%, maybe 16%, and those are essential the values that we obtain in the field in the most general term. So it's, it's essentially a deja vu that we have seen this before that not really much changed. With the exception that the ground motion level on this earthquake was at least half of that we obtained in the recent earthquake. These are some interesting pictures taken at the same direction and same location in the city of Kahraman Baraj. This is prior to the earthquake, this after the earthquake. So you can see that some, you know, nice looking buildings, streets and everything. And this is what took place after the earthquake. Well, probably you see this building and this building standing and this, this, this building and this building standing, maybe this one and this one, but that's about it. It's like a, the atomic bomb after the Hiroshima or something very similar to that, the view. And then this is another view from the city. Well, this building obviously stands and these features stand here, but the most of the buildings in this part have collapsed or in the verge of collapse. There's another uh, two views from the city. Well, this building I think stands still stands here, and then these three stand, and this one, this one stands, but the, all this group just falling down. It's interesting that they, well, you will see it later on, the, that the ones that fall down are essential, the ones that line the street. The reason being is that they're, the first floors are all shops with the infill walls removed that essentially makes them a soft story and then, well, targets them for failure. And that's a similar picture taken from another angle from the city. That city is preparing an album of this because they had all these pictures before and they have taken the same pictures after the earthquake in the same angle, same thing, and they're preparing an album on that. These are from the Antakya, or the old Antioch, and then, well, from here, I, I think 
these are all the basin effects that they essentially collapse in a very bad manner. And this is again from Antarctic Antioch. You see buildings standing, but the rest are have gone heavily, and then that's what we call the uh, pancake type of collapse, and I will come to that in a while. These are the statistics on the uh, on the damage rates. As I said, the two major areas of damage is in Kahraman Marash, this one, and this is the basin effect that's in Hatay. The number of damaged buildings, that means that all the buildings from the light damage to the heavy damage, in this case about 172, and the 44% of those are minor damage, 6% are medium damage, and 50% is major damage to collapse. And in Kahraman Marash, well, the number of damaged buildings, all sorts of damage is about 115,000. About 58 of them are minor damage, 6% medium damage, and then the third 6% damage. So 87% of the buildings with major damage to collapse were located in the essential four cities over there, or city centers. The interesting thing, for you to see here is that the median damage is very low. I mean, in, in if you look at the, for example, uh, the uh, the fragility curves for you know structures, uh, several parts on the world, you see that those figures would be close to each other. In this case, the median damage is very low. That shows the binary nature of the damage. So the building either stand or they collapse, and the reason being is that they are brittle structures. I mean, once the ground motion exits a certain level, they are gone. If it stays below that level, they, they, you know, they can have minor damage. But having medium damage is difficult in this case because there's no gradation of damage. Well, this could have been also, that losses could have been also, uh, could also have been uh, known before. The reason being that this is a study that we have made for the uh, assessment of the insurance premium or earthquake insurance premium, and this essentially shows the average building loss ratio under exposure to, 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 uh, to MC level ground motion, okay? Well, these are the areas that we think of the damage, and if you look at this figure probably, that's between 0 0.5 and 0.7, and in this area overall, the damage is between 0 0.3 and 0 0.5. That means that, that means that, uh, in, well, these are sub, those are sub-provinces. For example, in any of these sub-provinces, the, 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 the buildings, total buildings, lost their 40% of their value after this earthquake. I mean, either damage or do other things. So, so that's, the, that's what we call the uh, loss ratio. But that could have been predicted. Obviously, we cannot predict the location of the earthquake, but once it took place and once we know the science, we could have predicted much. Well, this I just added here to, to show you the, the way that the uh, earthquake resident building design and construction in Turkey is developed. The first code was in 1940, and at that time we just translated the Italian code and started start using it. Then after major earthquakes, there have been changes in the code, and these are the number of buildings that are still existing with that code. When we have the 1999 earthquake at this location, 1999 earthquake, that was a major earthquake, then there was a change in the code, and the, the code at that time appeared to be 1990, 
1998 code. That was a, that was a code. And then we have the 2007 code, and then now we are dealing with 2019 code. I would call this area as the low code area that we end up with most brittle structures, and this is the high code area, meaning that if the if the code conformity is pretty good, the buildings are quite safe. So the the thing is that prior to prior to 1996 code, which is here. The designer was permitted to design non-ductile reinforced concrete buildings, and driven in partly by cost, design result in non-ductile reinforced concrete buildings. The 1996 code was similar to the to the UBC 1997 code in the US, and the uh, 2019 code has similar features to both AC 716 and the EC8 codes. Most on the ground motion and the design issues is very similar to AC 716. Now, this obviously is, represents the type of buildings that are prone to damage whenever the earthquake uh, ground motion level, most acceleration and velocity level exceeds a certain level or if it's a major earthquake. And then that is a big issue, you know, all over, I would say, the, the, the part that we are in. This is a map for the Southeast Europe. You see Italy here. These are the Balkan countries. Greece is here. And then the yellow indicates the, uh, the low code and the red indicates the high code so it, it you can see easily that easily 40 percent of the buildings in turkey today is with respect to high code but uh, about 60 percent with respect to low code that means that if such an earthquake happens anywhere in the world anywhere in turkey we will have huge damage well the same that ratio also exists is in for example in italy but in italy they never, they have earthquakes, say 6, 6.5, never this size of earthquakes, so that they won't experience, and I hope they won't experience that sort of damage. Now, this is the almost repeats what I say is that the, about 40% of these buildings were built after 2000, so in the attendance with this code, with 1998 code, and then with proper design and construction controls. So you can see their uh, shape. Well, this is the displacement, like this is the lateral load. If it is brittle, whenever it reaches a certain uh, lateral load level, it just collapses. If it is ductile, well, it can uh, start yielding at lower loads, but then it can take huge displacements and can stay. Well, this is then uh, what you say from a brittle building, and that's what you would obtain in a ductile building. And then this is this shows that this shows that the level of the ground motion, the, the the buildings are built. That's the design level on this design level. But then then the amount of ground motion or the ground motion acceleration in this case they received acceleration spectra in this case is at least three times of that level. So that shows the that shows the uh, uh, one of the reasons for the damage. Obviously, it doesn't show that the why buildings have collapsed this way. They should have collapsed in a way that does not allow so many casualties. But then again, the rest is the poor building uh, construction standards. As I said, the, the 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 damage is selective and almost binary. You can see it easily in this figure. And then the, the worst type of collapse is you have is the, what we call the pancake collapse, where the floors file up on top of each other, which is the worst type of collapse mechanism that led to excessive casualties. If the buildings were built better, they would have 
collapse, but not this way. And then they would have left the people, you know, at least save their lives and the search and rescue teams could have worked properly. Well, such collapses were also seen, just to remind you, in Miami, but this, uh, this is a gravity-based structure and even the smallest problems in the in the first floor in the foundation whatever it is first leads this type of failure and then when the structure falls this way the impact uh, is disintegrates the structure and have it collapse in what we call the pancake format this is the type of thing that the, the earth engineer should strive to avoid these are some figures on the on the standing buildings and collapsed buildings the while the the media is such that you also always see the collapsed ones, but there are also ones that are standing pretty well. I'll just go them pretty fast. I don't want to take too much time on this, but you can see the uh, distinction between the ones that are total collapsed and the standing and nothing in between that much. Well, there, there was liquefaction problems, obviously, but in liquefaction, you know, although the structures uh, were unused after the earthquake, people, you know, left the structure with their uh, lives. Uh, they didn't lose their lives. And this is those are this is the this is rocking motion of the liquefaction. And those are the ones that are settlement uh, due to the uh, softened ground or liquefied ground. That was that was heavily cases of it, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. This is an interesting structure. That was the 12-year-old uh, so-called inter-Renaissance residence apartment complex in Antakya that was a very expensive complex that included everything, all the luxuries and everything. That's the, that's the picture of it and that's when it's built. The thing is that it has very low aspect ratios, uh, very high aspect ratios. Aspect ratio means that this, uh, the total height divided by this dimension, so that was close to 6-7. That's pretty high and, well, in uh, structural engineering, that means that if the earthquake acts, acts in this direction, you end up with huge accelerations in the columns here due to the overturning moment. And that's essentially what took place. And then you can see that the these columns here essentially gone due to the failure due to tension. That means that either the reinforced parts are not spliced properly or are not connected properly and they just let go here. A good example of this could have been the parking lot structure in Northridge earthquake. It just reminds me, it's the same type of collapse, except that look at these are what we call the ductile type of failure. So that even if people were people are in it, I'm sure they would they would have left it alive. Not in this case. This is a very sudden collapse, very big impact collapse. This the the some structures performed excellent in this earthquake and those are what we call the tunnel form structures this is a tunnel form structure so these are the tunnel forms and then essentially concrete is put uh, in these forms and then it's all over shear walls few shear walls about probably 12 centimeter thickness but this building this building and this huge complex in Iskenderun that's built by government agencies there's no damage at all and this is a low cost housing complex and about uh, 13,000 tunnel form buildings, most constructed by government agencies for local housing, performed very well. The building has shear walls of about 3% of the plan area. Well, the history repeats itself. The same thing in Chile. In 2010 earthquake, 
which is magnet 8.8, .8, but this was obviously the ground motion was less than what we have in the circuit because the uh, the distance, the, the the epicenter was about probably 100 kilometers away from the city. But then again, having only 500 deaths is is an is a, is an issue that should be related to the uh, to the use of the shear walls. Chile used heavy shear walls, and that's that's a lifesaver in such earthquakes. I'm sure that in the in the new buildings that are being built, the government wants to build them in what's called this uh, tunnel form structure. While it doesn't allow much of the uh, architectural freedom for you, but then again, it saves the people's lives. The schools and hospital buildings performed quite well. There were 20,000 educational buildings, schools and dormitories, what have. Only 3% of them collapsed and then 7% were heavily damaged. So that's that's compared to the past earthquakes in Turkey, that's a very big success. And the four hospitals were non-functional or partly functional due to earthquake damage. And 15% of the healthcare facilities, that includes the smallest hospitals, the largest hospitals were non-functional, but mostly due to non-structural damage. So those are the buildings, those are the structural buildings with structural damage. There's partial damage, but the rest of the building is standing. But it can most of them cannot be used due to the what we call the non-structural damage, most of fast ceilings and then cracks in the infill walls. On the other hand, the in the there there were nine isolated hospitals, seismic isolated hospitals. This is the one that's under construction, but even the scaffolding, nothing is on this one has fall down. This is the this is a very large, uh, probably second largest in the world uh, hospital, isolated hospital. I mean, people even didn't feel the earthquake. And these are two. This is the one we had. We stand this in dirty all again. Isolated hospitals, they function and serve people very well. So that while the government has taken the decision to make all hospitals uh, isolate, isolated and they are continuing with that decision and they have collected the fruits of the decision in the search in a way. If it comes to infrastructure, major infrastructure, infrastructure performed very well, about 150 dams, only two, only one of them in Turkey, embankment dam, but well, that's irrigation dam has some cracks. And then in Syria, there was about there was a 75 meter Afrin dam, again, similar damage. The main hydrocarbon pipelines, obviously they got damaged and the roads and railroads when they're crossing the falls, but apart from that, they served fine. And the port of Iskenderun has sustained the fire damage. These are the pictures of it. These are the major oil pipelines. They all come to here for export purposes and obviously they're cutting the, the, the falls here and then at the fault junctions, they were damaged. And this is from the dam. And this is the fire and the port, but that was put out easily. Again, damage to highways and railways and bridges were very good. More than 1,000 bridges, only 15 had slight damage, and the, all the transport routes were I, I operated within two days. The reason being is that almost all the bridges, well, Turkey is an Ashtar country, so almost all the bridges are built to Ashtar and Caltrans regulations under supervision of government departments. Well, well, I, I think that even several bridges in, in California just collapsed with ground motions less than what it is. So the, the, the bridges really performed very well. The Hatay Airport had some damage due to its runway due to liquefaction and tunnels performed very well. These are some pictures of it. 
well, this is the road damage, some linings on the tunnels uh, fall down. Obviously, when you are passing liquefied areas, the railroads are not in good shape. Well, this bridge collapsed due to a small bridge due to uh, liquefaction, but there's a new one here, a parallel to this one that didn't have any damage, so they use this bridge. This is the repair of the uh, runway on the airport. There was some damage to industry, but most became operational after the earthquake. And the financial losses amount to about 100 billion. Well, that's about 9% of the GDP of Turkey. That's that's quite high. And the government plans to build about 400,000 uh, 400, new urban housing units within one or two years. The, the earthquake insurance is about 5 billion damage. The insurance penetration in earthquake insurance penetration in there is about 55%, which is very high. Uh, well, not high for Turkey, there are areas for 100%, but 55% is very high compared to the world. Then the total about the total number of uh, claims about reach of close to about 500,000 and probably 3 billion damage will be paid. But the reason being is that such low payment is that only 5% collapse, 6% heavy damage, 9% medium damage, and 80% minor damage. It's amazing that the that the people that purchased the earthquake were mostly people that live in pretty good houses. So that's another indication of, of such an earthquake. Well, the reasons extent for damage to residential building and life loss, I have went over them, so I'm running out of time. I don't want to spend too much time on this. So we are proposing additional measures for new buildings to the government. One of them is the Institution of Professional Engineering. We don't have professional engineering. There is mandatory professional liability insurance and the requirement of third-party liability insurance and the provision of earthquake risk reports for all house transactions. Those are the ones that are pushing the government. Those are some of the most soft measures, but I'm sure they would be very effective in the code compliance. For uh, existing risky buildings, there is an urban renewal program. It's going on, but it's going on rather slow. So what we are pushing the government is that we should work for a special retrofit campaign for older buildings, brittle buildings. But to do this, what we need an external retrofit. So without having the tenants to vacate their apartments, that's the way to go. Otherwise, if you tell the tenant vacate their apartment, go somewhere else and get your house retrofitted, move in, do all the repairs, do all the, the finishes and everything, that's a cumbersome project. So what we are pushing government to start a campaign like this. And then the last. Uh, OK, the last one is that that the, I'm sure Turkish people thanks the Los Angeles County Search and Rescue team. They have done a great work and saved lots of lives. So that concludes my presentation and thank you for listening. I, I try to be as fast as I can. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mustafa, for thank you for really great uh, uh, summary of everything, every subject that uh, we could have imagined. So I think that uh, that was a that gave us uh, additional information that we didn't know. So thank you for taking time from your visit to San Francisco Bay Area and doing this seminar. I really appreciate well, it. Thank you. I could have done the same thing from Istanbul, but it turned out that I had to do it from San Francisco, Mehmet. That's all right. Well, 
you know, that's the way that we could arrange it. So, yes, tell me. That's all right. Evan, do you want to conduct the question session? Yeah, do we have any questions from the audience? I saw Tom had his. Okay, I have I have one question. Uh, maybe uh, well, Tom Hanks has a, his hand up, so maybe he should uh, ask first. After that, I will. Tom. Tom, do you want to unmute yourself? Are you on mute? Um, since the Mexico City earthquake, I've been concerned about how many people really died in, in that earthquake or this earthquake when you say 260,000 people or buildings have been damaged or collapsed. That's only um, one person for every five buildings which sort of seems like an underestimate. So are the number of, of fatalities based solely on body counts or on missing people? Or how do you reckon that? Well, the, that number is the cumulative number. That's, that's what you have achieved after so many uh, aftershocks and earthquakes. After the first earthquake, well, the the number of collapsed buildings was about six, seven thousand people, six and seven thousand. But the the after nine hours there was another earthquake. But by that time people were out, so they didn't really get killed. And the most of the uh, numbers just added up because the aftershocks took down the buildings, but the, there were no people in them. Okay, so you you feel that that fifty thousand is is a reliable well it maybe i mean it, it can increase say probably you know 10 percent, but that's about it that's what okay. i think yeah. okay thank you sure okay uh can i ask you a question uh i think mustafa one of the things that uh, i at least heard uh that uh, when I was uh, just leaving Turkey, uh, I, I was there for two weeks. At least the government officials were um, making statements which were quite positive, I thought, that they were now going to listen to academicians and experts. Uh, do you feel that uh, that's being... Uh, uh, done now at the moment yeah Mehmet, i mean the academicians and experts needs to be qualified you know some of them you know stay at the magnitude level magnitude of the earthquake level they cannot even differentiate between the intensities and magnitudes so i, I don't know how will that go they formed a committee and i'm a member of that committee and i'm pushing for the stuff that i've told you but they are you know especially with professional engineering you know they uh, they don't want to take decisions at this stage just 
just uh, you know a month before the elections because you know I'm sure that that they may have some ramifications or that but I am sure that the several things will be done and that we are pushing very very deeply for licensed engineers and professional engineers and the and the uh, insurance with that the liability insurance and those are soft measures but I'm sure that they will add a lot because the what is clear that the buildings that are built properly can withstand the earthquake and the and the built properly means that they are properly designed that's the most important thing because the the current control system cannot check the designs it's difficult to check the designs but they can check the construction so what we should do go after i think having a proper design that follows the strictly the code itself well since no other hands are up i can uh, ask another question what do you think that uh, are the implications of these earthquakes with the larger expected Marmara earthquake that will definitely affect Istanbul, which is uh, heavily populated and heavily built. Do you have any uh, forecast for that? Well, I have several forecasts for that, but one one good thing obviously is that the, the maximum magnitude that we expect in the Marmara is less than that. And second, the fault passes on their average about 20 kilometers out of the city, not under the city. Those are two positive things. And then uh, in Istanbul, the soil conditions are pretty good, no basins, no nothing. The other thing is that in Istanbul, there is about, I would imagine, about 106,000 buildings that what we call the local buildings that needs to be retrofitted or dismantled and built again. So that's, the, that's why we are pushing for the what we call the temporary retrofit or emergency retrofit so that at least the people in it can save their lives and after that with the money they get from the insurance and from the government can they build their house again but the the people are obviously very much excited you know some some wants to get you know they even go to stores try to buy the isolation units you know so that to get their building isolated and the some are looking around so that how they can get it retrofitted but it's it's a very complex complex thing. I, yeah, I mean, your question is very valid, but it needs to be investigated. And I've been talking with the friends in Japan, and I also talked with the Aisha Hortatsu from ATC and with some other colleagues, so that if we can start a you know some sort of design competition, so that to come up with the external retrofit type of design for these type of buildings with uh, with not enough earthquake performance. Because unless we have external retrofit, it would be very difficult to for them to people to vacate the building and come back again and start finishing it again type of thing. Well, great, uh, great to hear that you are saying this, Mustafa, because I have been also advocating for the last 10 years, almost the same thing, identical. So that's great. I'm really happy to hear that you are also doing that. Thank I think Kate, Kate, has a, Kate has a question. Kate. Hey, thanks so much for that. That was really informative and um, interesting. I was wondering if you could speak a little more about the the bridge uh, success story. That seems impressive that so many bridges were um, didn't didn't tumble. Are they uh, sort of is or is it largely that they were built in sort of the last two decades? Is that is it related to recency or the, is there something about the code well, um, that helped there? 
Well, codes essentially follow, as I said, the both Caltrans and Ashto. Well, Caltrans also follows Ashto to some degree. And then the, some of them are, uh, I think two or three of them are isolated, but more than that, they are done by uh, you know big companies and under government control with good design and everything. The problem with residential buildings is that most of them are built individually, not, not by big contractors, by just small contractors that don't know anything what is good or what is bad and they are poorly checked so i mean i don't see anything well i i think the the bridges has received good engineering design and plus uh, reliable construction under government supervision that's about it but same thing with the schools and all public buildings i mean very few damage in the public buildings all the stuff difficult stuff is in the residential buildings and then the buildings that are built individually thank you Okay, um, Bell Philobosian has a question in the chat, which I'm going to read real quick. Um, you mentioned at the end that earthquake insurance is mandatory for private residences, but also penetration is 55%. Can you expand on that or clarify? Is insurance not required for apartment buildings? Well, it is required for apartment buildings, but the whether it, it is checked through the to the municipality services. I mean, if you don't have if you don't have uh, insurance, you cannot get the municipal services, but uh, when when it comes to renewal time, you may or may not renew it. So it is not mandatory in the sense that if you don't have insurance, you are uh, you receive a penalty. So there are some controls on it, but the problem that's not enough in certain areas. For example, in Istanbul, it reaches about seventy percent. There are some cities that close to ninety percent, and in that area, fifty-five percent. But the the interesting thing is that although the number of claims are about 500,000 as you have seen that about 80% of them are from minor damage so they may not get much of a money out of that the it's amazing that usually there is the moral hazard in insurance business and those people living in bad houses get insurance in good houses they don't get insurance but for some reason it, it reversed in this earthquake and the, I'm sure that the reasons will be, will be sorted out eventually, but that's that's what it. I, I think the Turkey is the second largest country after New Zealand with that high earthquake insurance penetration. I don't think in California it exceeds 15 percent. Okay, I think we have quest, um, time for one question for Walter Mooney, and then we'll transition to the open session. Thank you very much for your presentation, Mustafa. It was very comprehensive uh, and informative. Uh, do you know if there have been field geological studies to measure the slip, the amount of slip along the fault and uh, the uh, nature of the motion, you know, strike slip versus thrusting and so on? Geological studies. Well, several of them. I just, you know, copied some of them uh, and then the 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 vertical motion was in the vicinity of about some some measure about 30 centimeters some measure probably 40 centimeters not that great it's mostly left lateral and then they they mostly measured through drones and then scaled them but in certain areas they said that they found probably six meters which is the maximum probe they that you can find on the surface because on the fault mechanisms uh, that solutions you you go up to probably eight meters at the most but that's about it but there are so many reports on that. I can, you know, I'll be happy to to send you some references. Several people measured those things. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
All right, at this point, um, since it is 11.30, I think we can stop the recording. And then if people want to stay on and uh, chat, um, we'll just leave the uh, room on for open session.